You've probably heard the expression, it's actually a biblical proverb, that pride goes before a fall. Maybe you can even think of an example in your own life where that is held true or an example in someone else's life. When I was thinking about this, I thought about uh, the example of Patrick Waugh. Patrick Waugh was one of the greatest goaltenders in uh, NHL history. And in 2002, he was playing for the Colorado Avalanche in a playoff series against their bitter rivals, the Detroit Red Wings. Uh, the, the Avalanche were winning the series 3-2. to two. It was game six. If they won one more game, they were moving on to the next round. And there was a moment in the first period. It was 0-0 near the end of the period. And Steve Iserman from the Red Wings had a glorious chance to score in front of Patrick Waugh. But he dove to his left and blocked the puck from going in. And after he did so... He got onto his knees and he held his glove in the air as if to show everyone what an amazing save he had just made. And it was impressive, but he was making sure that everyone knew that he had made this save. Now, unbeknownst to him, when he lifted his hand up, the puck fell down behind him and the Red Wings had an open net and they scored a goal. And so he went from this position to this position within a matter of seconds. Pride goes before a fall. The Avalanche would go on to lose that game, and the Red Wings would win game seven, seven to nothing, and that would be one of the the final moments in Patrick Waugh's career. Pride goes before a fall. The story that we're going to read in Daniel chapter four today tells a dramatic, incredible story of pride coming before a, a historic fall. It was really quite something as we read this story today. Now, we're in this series we've called uh, Stand Out, and we've looked at the first three chapters of the book of Daniel, and we've read three stories that are, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard those stories before. Daniel chapter 3, in particular, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to the fiery furnace is a pretty popular story. Chapter 6, Daniel will go into the lion's den. That's another popular story. Daniel 4 and 5 are not as popular Uh, And yet, some commentators look at the entire book and say chapters 4 and 5 are the climax of the whole thing, because they tell two stories that parallel each other. Two kings, first King Nebuchadnezzar and then King Belshazzar, both very proud and powerful kings, both taught a lesson about humility. King Nebuchadnezzar is humbled, and then when he responds positively, he is lifted back up into a position of prominence. King Belshazzar is proud and does not humble himself and actually pays the price with his entire life. So there's these two parallel stories that we'll look at this week and next that form this this really important point in the book of Daniel. And we could summarize chapter 4 by saying this, God is in control and you are not. God is in control, and you are not. King Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn this in a dramatic kind of way. So as we read Daniel 4, we'll see that there are four movements in the text. There's an introduction and a conclusion that comes at the end. These mirror each other. And then in between, we have a dream and its interpretation. And then we have the dream's fulfillment. And um, we'll see some, some dramatic things as we go through the story. And then we'll say there's two themes that come out of this chapter for us. Uh, One is that God is in control, and God sovereignly gives power to those that he wants to give power to, and takes it away just as easily. And then secondly, this idea that pride comes before a fall. So we'll read the story together, and I'll make some comments uh, that help us to understand it as we read through. So chapter 4, starting in verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar is actually writing this portion, at least most of chapter 4, is written in the first person from King Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. 
King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, Let's pause there for a moment and just evaluate King Nebuchadnezzar's attitude towards the God of Israel, Daniel's God, throughout the book so far. In chapter 2, Daniel is able to interpret a dream for the king that none of the other magicians or astrologers or enchanters were able to interpret. And so the king said to Daniel after this, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. There's some acknowledgement that Daniel's God has a special kind of power, but he stops short of actually putting his, his own faith in this God. Then when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of the fiery furnace unharmed, Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his, his angel and rescued his servants. And in verse 29, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against this God will be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Again, an acknowledgement that this God can save, that this God has power, but, and in protection for those who follow this God, but not necessarily a claim to believing in this God himself. Maybe believing in him alongside of the other gods of Babylon, but not exclusively. Here in chapter 4 is about as close as we get to a declaration of faith in, in the sovereignty of God. So moving into the next part of chapter 4, in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Now just pause here for a moment and notice Daniel's job title. He's the chief of the magicians. We noted in chapter 1 that Daniel was taken away from his homeland into exile in Babylon and there was this indoctrination attempt that was put on his life where he had to study for three years the, the ways of the Babylonians and all of their, their magic, all of their astrology, all of these Babylonian omens and chants that they used in order to, to, to discern the ways of the gods. This is what Daniel had to learn. He was named with a Babylonian name, uh, which, which was named after one of their gods. And we said he, he drew the line in certain places, and yet he actually endured an awful lot. Somehow he was not afraid of being defiled by the culture that he was in. He was not afraid that he was, his faith was going to be overwhelmed by the things that he was learning. Instead, God gave him special favor, and he was actually able to critique the culture from within the culture and supersede that culture with a power that came from outside of it, that came from God himself. So, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while I was lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. 
From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. Now, the word heaven is repeated 24 times in the book of Daniel because Daniel wants us to understand that heaven rules, as he'll say later on, heaven rules over the affairs of earth. Messenger from heaven, and this messenger called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass by for him. This decision is announced by the messengers, the holy ones, declare the verdict, so that the living may know, and keep, keep track of this phrase coming up here, because it'll happen two more times after this, that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets them over the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, I, now, now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now, let's pause there for a moment, and if you've read this story before, I want to ask you to pretend like you haven't heard it before, and if you've never heard this story before, this is perfect, I want to ask you this question. Knowing what you know, given what I just read to you out of Daniel chapter 4, what do you think the dream means? If you were dragged in front of King Nebuchadnezzar and he said, what does this mean? And you had to take a guess. What would you say? I ask you that because this dream actually doesn't seem terribly difficult to understand. Right? The tree represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And there's this bit about the, the, the mind of a man being changed into a mind of an animal. We could, we could wonder about what that means. But There's something being spoken against Nebuchadnezzar here in his kingdom, and we could probably put those pieces together, at least in a general sense. And it seems like the magicians, the astrologers, the enchanters, and the diviners, this was their job to understand these kinds of things. They should have been able to figure this one out. So there's at least two reasons why they maybe didn't figure it out. One was maybe they did, but they were afraid to tell King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, this is a a vision against you, and they were afraid for their lives if they spoke up in that kind of a way. Or secondly, maybe they just didn't understand, and it was actually the limits of their secular resources. They'd reached the limits of what they could understand without the inspiration of God. Either way, Daniel is recognized as the one who has the spirit of the holy gods, and we read that to know the spirit of the holy God, within him, and so he is able to interpret this dream. So we carry on then in verse 19, Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Now, note his attitude towards this pagan ruler who has taken him from his homeland and transplanted him into a foreign land, forced him to be enculturated into this this new society. It would be very easy for Daniel at this point to say, Nebuchadnezzar is an evil king, and he's done all of these terrible things to me, and it's with some uh, amount of glee and delight that I tell him that he is about to lose his power, but Daniel has a completely different attitude towards Nebuchadnezzar. 
I want what's good for you, O king, and I wish this didn't apply to you. Verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming from heaven, and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree that the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from the people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like oxen and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. Here's the second time this phrase is used. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots mean that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Daniel picks up uh, the role of prophet in this last little bit here. Old Testament prophets uh, had a couple of different roles. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament theologian, outlines two of them. He talks about how prophets had the role of prophetic criticism as well as prophetic energizing. So criticism is fairly easy to understand. A prophet would go to a group of people, or in this case, the king, and say, God has set a standard for you to live to, and you are not fulfilling that standard. You are not pursuing God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your heart has been brought astray, and you're going to suffer consequences because your heart is not fully committed to the Lord. But then there's the the flip side of, of energizing and saying, but if you will commit yourself to the Lord, if you will turn your ways back to him, if you will follow him, in this case, Nebuchadnezzar, if you will recognize that your power means that you have a responsibility to pursue justice for people who are poor, and you are oppressing them, you're, you're missing the point. You, you, are, you are called as a leader with authority to, to rule for the good of those who are under your leadership. If you will do that, then this might happen. Something good might happen. Then God might bless. In this case, God might not bring this judgment upon you and your prosperity might continue. So section 3 starts in verse 28. The dream is fulfilled. All of this happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's not totally wrong here because Babylon was a very impressive city and he was responsible for building it. Uh, The the city consisted of, of double walls, sets of double walls for protection against enemies. The first set of walls surrounded the city proper. The, the inner wall was 21 feet thick with defense towers every 60 feet, and the outer wall was 11 feet thick. Later on, Nebuchadnezzar would build another set of double walls, 
Uh, the, the outer wall was 25 feet thick and the inner wall was 23 feet thick. And this wall stretched 17 miles along the Euphrates River and was wide enough for chariots to pass each other on top of the wall. This is an impressive structure. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in Babylon, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which, which Nebuchadnezzar created for his wife who missed home and so he created this for her. It was an impressive place to be. The architecture was stunning. The, the design was, was uh, very smart. And Nebuchadnezzar was responsible for most of it. But you can hear the pride in his voice, can't you? I have done this by my might and for the glory of my own majesty. So verse 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority will be taken from you. You will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High, here's the third time, is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Can you imagine? (laughs) What an odd and crazy thing to happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, as, uh, as doctors and scholars look at this, they suggest that King Nebuchadnezzar is probably suffering from a psychological condition known as boanthropy, which is a condition in which a person thinks that he or she is a cow or an ox. It's actually a subset of a condition called zoanthropy, which is where a person believes that they're an animal, any kind of animal. Boanthropy is more specific to a cow or an ox. Now, this is very rare, incredibly rare. However, there was a study done of scientific literature from 1850 onward, and 56 cases of clinical zoanthropy were found, with symptoms of this lasting for as short of a time as an hour and as long of a time as several decades where people lived with this understanding and this idea, this belief that they were actually an animal. Now, with the advent of modern medicine, we don't really see this very much anymore. But it is something that exists, and it seems like that's the best medical explanation for what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. But of course, we know that God is behind this as the judgment on King Nebuchadnezzar's pride. And so whatever it was, we know that God was the one causing it for him. Now, we've read several times that seven times would pass by before Nebuchadnezzar would emerge from this state. Um, Many scholars believe that to be years, but it's not really clarified that it's years. It's seven periods of time, so it's not really clear how long it was, but it could have been seven years that Nebuchadnezzar lived like this. Verse 34, then, the conclusion to the story. At that time, the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor was returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. All those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. 
And this is the last we hear of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Amazing story. And two themes come to the forefront, and we're just going to talk really quickly about the first one and then move to the second. The first is a theme we've seen throughout the book so far, is that God sovereignly gives power and authority to those he wishes. And also he takes it away when he wishes. Now, there's a tension in that, isn't there? For us as believers in God to hold to that sovereignty while also recognize that there are evil rulers who have come to power throughout history, including King Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, the example we all want to bring up is Hitler. How could God's sovereignty be behind the reign of Hitler? This is a tension that we hold and a tension that is presented to us in the book of Daniel. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 13, where he says, all authority has been established by God. He's writing during the reign of Nero, Emperor Nero of Rome. Now, Nero was more brutal towards Christians at the end of his reign than the beginning, which is probably when Paul was writing Romans, but he's still under the thumb of the evil empire of Rome and Nero, their leader, and he's saying, every authority has been established by God, therefore submit yourselves to these authorities. Like, how is that supposed to work? And yet it's a tension we're called to embrace and a tension that we're called to hold, that God sovereignly appoints leaders as he wants, and also some of these leaders will make evil decisions and even pursue evil agendas. N.T. Wright points out that this is actually the tension on display before Jesus is crucified. It's this tension, he says, which came to its head when in John's gospel, John stood before the Roman governor and declared that even though he was about to execute him, the power by which he did it had come from God in the first place. There's this tension that we live with, that we hold. But because God sovereignly places rulers and authorities in place, and because God prefers an ordered society as to one with no control over it, that influences how we react and respond. Now, Paul also called the government to operate properly in a couple of places in Acts. And so that's a, a right response for us. But it should tell us, like the attitude Daniel had towards his rulers, that acting with arrogance and pride towards them, uh, responding with sarcasm towards leaders is not an appropriate response for believers. Instead, we are called to pray for those who are in authority over us. Pray for their good. Pray that they would flourish. Because as Daniel understood, even when King Nebuchadnezzar flourished, then he would flourish alongside, and so would the world. It's a good uh, segue into our second point which is pride goes before a fall. Because I think often when we as people are tempted to speak against leaders in, in our society, we do so from a position of pride, don't we? We don't know what it's like to be in their shoes. We don't know what it's like to, to have to think through all the things they have to think about. We don't have all the information available to us. And yet often we speak with this level of pride saying, well, I could do it better if I was there. We, we all live with pride in some areas of our life. It, it's one of the, the primary ways in which the devil tries to trip us up, right? right? We, we all look to ourselves. We all inflate our own sense of, of talent or skill or intelligence. Uh, we all look to ourselves first, right? Like when you see a group photo, who do you look for first? You, you look for yourself, Right? And it doesn't matter that your friend had their eyes closed and, and their fly was down. If you look good, you're happy with the picture. 
But if you don't look good, you want the photographer to take it again. That, that's what we look for. We look for ourselves. We want ourselves to look good. There's a, a fascinating study that was done by a guy named uh, David Dunning. He's done lots of studies in, in this kind of uh, an area. He, he surveyed people as to their familiarity in certain subjects. So subjects such as biology or physics or politics or geography. And so he would ask these people, how familiar do you think you are with this given topic? And they would say, I feel really familiar, you know, somewhat or not at all, somewhere, somewhere along that, those lines. And then he would put a, a list of terms in front of them, ask them how familiar they were with certain terms on the list. So there would be terms like centripetal force or photon, and people would say, yes, I know what that is, or I'm really familiar with that, or I'm not sure, or, I don't know. But mixed in with all of these terms, he would throw in a bunch of fake terms. So he would throw in terms like plates of parallax, and ultralipid, and cholerine. These aren't real things. They're just made up words that sound kind of scientific. And in one of these studies, 90% of people claimed that they had familiarity with these fictitious concepts because they inflated their sense of knowledge. And in fact, what they found was the people who claimed that they were really familiar with a given topic were more prone to buy into these fake things as opposed to the real things. And so in his, his uh, summary, he writes things like this. The more well-versed respondents considered themselves in a general topic, the more familiarity they claimed with meaningless terms. For poor performers to recognize their ineptitude would require them to possess the very expertise that they lack. Poor performers, and we are all poor performers in some things, fail to see the flaws in their thinking or the answers that they lack. The incompetent are often blessed with an inappropriate confidence, buoyed by something that feels to them like knowledge. <laughs> in other words, the more clueless a person is on a, a given topic, the more confidently they speak about it. It's, it's kind of the, the dynamic of pride at play, isn't it? That the, the more we think that we're good at something, the more that we'll pretend to be good at something to, to boost our own value, to boost our own self-worth. We are slow to recognize our areas of pride. We're slow to recognize when we're actually not very good at something or not very skilled at something. We inflate our own ego. We think of ourselves as better than we are. And this doesn't always look like strutting around with arrogance and and, and verbally, you know, talking about all of my accomplishments. Sometimes pride hides itself in a false humility, which actually looks down on people inwardly while outwardly trying to maintain this veneer of humility. So let's ask a few questions that could diagnose pride within us. First question is this, am I quick, quick to admit when I don't know something? Am I quick to admit when I don't know something? We all feel this, right? This happened to me a while ago. I was on a phone call with someone and, and someone said, you know about such and such a topic, don't you? And uh, it, was, it was one of those things that felt like because I was a pastor, I should have some knowledge of it. Like it was a religious, political kind of thing. And I was really tempted in that moment to say, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yep, yep, let's talk about it. But I had no idea what he was talking about. And so I, I actually said, no, sorry, I, I don't know what you're talking about. But there was kind of a humiliation in that. And, and even his reaction was like, oh. And I thought, oh, I, I should know about that. We're all tempted to pretend we know things that we don't or we know more than we do. So am I quick to admit when I don't know something? Uh, next, do I compare myself with other people often? Do I compare myself to other people often? 
we all want to feel superior to other people. And even when we feel inferior to other people, often that's still a prideful thing, comparing ourselves. Third question, do I think I'm indispensable? You ever worked with a person like that who felt like they were way more valuable to the organization than they actually were? And they felt like this place couldn't operate without me? Or have you ever felt that yourself? Next, do I find myself thinking poorly or critically of other people often? Do I look down on people? And lastly, do I excuse myself for things that I hold against other people? You've probably heard the saying that we judge other people based on their actions, but we judge ourselves based on our intentions. We often have far more grace for ourselves than we do for other people. It's pride talking when we hold something against someone else when we forgive ourselves for doing the very same thing. The story of Nebuchadnezzar reminds us that God is in control and we are not. And when we think we are in control, we, we, we succumb to pride and we abandon humility. C.S. Lewis has this great quote in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And so the consistent call of Scripture is for us to take our eyes off of ourselves, to stop looking down on other people, and instead look towards the God of heaven who is truly in control. Proverbs 27, verse 2, Let someone else praise you and not your own lips. An outsider, not your own lips. Let someone else praise you. Don't do it yourself. In Luke 14, verse 11, Jesus says, All those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And 1 Peter 5 and James 5 uh, quotes this same verse, but 1 Peter 5, Peter says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. It's when we recognize God's mighty hand is in control in everything that's happening in the world that we are able to live with humility because we don't feel the pressure to do it all and figure it out on our own. Of course, the greatest example of humility is Jesus Christ himself. And when we turn our eyes to him, we see a perfect model of how we ought to live. And so as we close our service today, we're going to move to communion and we're going to turn our eyes to the Jesus who humbled himself to death on a cross for our sake, that we might uh, live for him, that we might follow the example that he set for us.